Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, as we read verses 27 to 34. Hear now the word of God. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in your word today, please make us to understand the authority of Jesus, the reality of sickness and suffering, but also the dread reality of a hard heart and unbelief. By your Spirit's power, please protect us so that we would be willing to see where we and our own hearts might be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's, this morning's passage uh, relates to the sovereignty of God over sickness and disability. If you were looking for scripture passages where God openly declares his sovereignty over the very things we see in this passage, one of the earliest places that you might look is actually in that famous address uh, of God to Moses. If you remember, uh, Moses, as a middle-aged man, has, has fled from Egypt, and he is now watching Jethro's flock, and he is exploring the mountain. And as he's exploring the mountain, he comes across this burning bush, and he is intrigued by the fact that the bush is not consumed. And so he draws near to the bush, and God speaks to Moses, and he tells him that he, Moses, is going to be God's messenger. But then we get that famous exchange where Moses expresses his own doubt about his ability to fulfill this calling. And I, I want you to listen closely to what Moses says, and then especially listen to God's answer to him once again. It says, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So God is, is telling Moses, because I am sovereign over your stutter or your slow speech or whatever you think is wrong with you, you can do it. Because I am God. You know, he's really just asserting his authority here. But if you look deeply, you will, you'll see that, he's, that the, the fundamental assumption here 
is that God makes men mute. He makes men deaf. He makes men blind. And we don't like to think like this. I, I think we're afraid to talk this way. I, I think we're afraid that it is, it is bad for us to say God makes people blind. We don't, something inside of us does not like to say that. But God says it about himself. See, we, we should not be embarrassed to affirm things about God that God plainly says about himself. He is sovereign. We don't have to be embarrassed about God's sovereignty over these things. And what all that means is that he is in control. Ultimately, God is sovereign over these disabilities, right, that we see in this passage today. And that hasn't changed since the time of Moses. His declaration to Moses is still just as true as it was when he said it the first time. Uh, These two blind men, in other words, are not blind because of the raw power of chance. They are not victims of circumstance. They are not blind by accident. But rather, God says to Moses, Who makes man blind or seeing? It is I, the Lord. So as we look at this passage, just keep in mind that that as we see the work of Jesus here, that when Jesus is dealing with these physical conditions, he is directly working in God's workshop. He's working with God's tools. Blindness or muteness or deafness, they are all explicitly said in God's word to be things that are under the sovereign hand of God. These men are blind, it must be said, because of the will of God. This demon-possessed man is is mute because of the demons, to be sure, and yet those demons could not practice their oppression of this man apart from the permission and will of God. So Jesus meets these three men in this passage today. Two of them are blind. One of them is mute. Two of them cannot see. One of them cannot speak. They live in a place God has said he is sovereign in and over the realm of sickness and blindness. But in all of these circumstances, we see the authority of Jesus even to move on territory that is understood in Scripture to belong to God alone. He he heals. And when he does it, he calls, in John 10, he calls it the work of my Father. Right? So even even as he is doing miracles, even as God has the prerogative to heal, so Jesus has the prerogative to heal. Even as God is the one who makes men mute or deaf or seeing or blind, what does Jesus do? He shows the same authority. His listeners are meant to connect the dots. (laughs) He's doing the works of God. He ministers with the very authority of God. And so that's a lengthy introduction. But let's look at three brief points here in the passage And then you'll get a longer conclusion from me than you usually do. Um, First, eyes that see. Second, mouths that speak. And then third, ears that refuse to hear. Um, So in the narrative, we come to eyes that see. This happens in verses 27 to 31. Uh, Jesus is walking and these two men cry out to him. They say, have mercy on us, son of David. They address Jesus using a formula That doesn't just say they believe that he is a miracle worker. There is content to what they believe about who Jesus is. They call him son of David. 
This is a messianic reference, right? Messianic means Messiah. Messiah is another word for anointed one. The Messiah in the Old Testament was the one they were expecting. It, it is the one that they were seeking and looking for. And now these men say, that's him. The, the man that we're coming up to and asking him for healing is, is not just a generic miracle worker. He is actually the one that in the Old Testament was said would sit on the throne of David. That's who this is. That was the promise God made in 2 Samuel 7. And if you think about this, so far in Matthew, no one else has addressed him like this. This is the first person that we know of in the text to address Jesus that way. So it's so, so interesting that these men may be blind, but they know the scriptures. Um, they're more seeing than some of the people in these crowds, aren't they? They know the Savior is going to be David's son, and they know that that man is here now. And so what you're seeing here is not just, not just faith that he's a great healer. I, I heard about this guy. He's going to do something really great for me because he's done really great things for other people. That's not what this is. See, keep in mind that as we look at what happens next, they ask him to have mercy, and then he asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And then they reply, yes, Lord. So they believe in the power of God, and they believe that this is the Messiah. And understand, too, we're talking about belief here, what they believe, and yet it doesn't just stop at belief. It's not just about what they think in the abstract, because these are men that they put their faith into action, right? They do something about what they believe. They actually followed him to his house. They actually, which is not easy for a blind person to do. They find a way to get to this location where he is. They, they act on their faith because they believe that he is the Messiah and that he could do this. They know he's the son of David. They know the scriptures. The scriptures repeatedly tell us the power of God over a person's eyesight. They know God can do this. Think of Psalm 94, 9. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Proverbs 20, 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. The Bible is reminding us that God is the one who has given us the ability to see in the first place. He invented eyesight. He invented the concept of eyesight. He invented two openings on our face that let light in and they, they bounce off of the nerves and the nerves respond and they create a signal in our brain that tells us that the world around us is something that's visible. We, we have two so that we can have depth perception and dodge, well, or not dodge, uh, dodge balls when they come flying at us, if you're me anyway. Um, you know, we, we have depth perception. We can see. It is, it is amazing. And if you can see, this is a really simple application. Be thankful that you can see. If you can see, be grateful for that. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up. On your list of things you're grateful for, just write, I can see. Super simple stuff. Our list of things we can be grateful for is extremely long. I'm finding out my eyesight is getting worse with age. Uh, I just went uh, to my eye doctor a few months ago, and he told me that I have presbyopia. Uh, which apparently translates as elder vision. Uh, I thought that was funny because I thought that's what I got the day they ordained me. Uh, no. no, apparently you get it later. Uh, elder vision. Uh, presbyopia, it's a power we get. Um, 
Um, but you know what? I, I may have diminished eyesight. It's absolutely true. I need to make the font on my iPad bigger uh, every sermon, it seems like. My doctor's explanation was not that I had be, been newly ordained. He said, you're getting old. Um, but even with my diminished eyesight, I'm in awe of the fact that I can see, the fact that I am able to, to look out and, and see the world. What an amazing thing that we easily pass over, we easily take for granted every single day. Eyesight is a gift. Um, the design of the eye is one of the greatest, most marvelous, complex inventions in all of the universe. It is barely the tip of the iceberg of what God can do. Uh, but I'm discovering this for myself, that since the fall, not all eyes work properly. Right? We know this, that sickness is real, disability is real, uh, blindness is real. Uh, I remember ministering to a sweet, wonderful saint uh, at my old church in Mississippi. Her name was Maggie. Uh, a few months after I moved here to begin pastoring here, Maggie passed away. And I would go and sit with Maggie, and she was blind in one eye. She actually had a glass eye. And her other eye was constantly under threat of losing her vision. And she had learned to get around her house, basically, without being able to see. She learned to make meals for her husband and for her son, uh, even though she basically had no eyesight left. And she lived constantly knowing that she might lose her other eye as well, because that's what happened to her mother. It was something that ran in her family. And I remember like, with sitting, sitting with her at the table and, and wanting to hear her words, because she was such a tremendous encouragement to me, somebody who lived essentially in the darkness, and hearing her talk to me about her hope and about the fact that the Lord is faithful. And you believe it when you're talking to somebody whose life is going really well, but you really believe it when you hear from somebody who is almost blind and who says, God is faithful. God has cared for me. He's always taken care of me. That is the kind of person that you really want to hear from. Somebody who's hurting and says, I know that God is faithful. And, and in scripture, God tells us um, that he has the power to heal such problems and he claims that power for himself. In fact, when he's talking to Isaiah about the future work, he says this. He says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That's Isaiah 35. And perhaps these men even knew of that promise that God gave to Isaiah in an oral culture like theirs. They could have gone into the synagogue. They could have heard the word of God. They could have heard these words of Isaiah. And you could imagine, for, sometimes you hear a scripture passage and it feels so relevant to you. More than all the other people in the room, it was like it was something you needed to hear. And it was just one line in the reading, but it stuck with you. And maybe you've had that experience before. And you could imagine as they're reading from the scroll of Isaiah, as they're reading through chapter 35, and then he hears them say, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And you could imagine that staying with them. All the things that they would think about. Maybe one day God will lift this blindness from me. He can do it. Maybe these men understand that and they believe that. And they believe if Jesus is the son of David, then they know that this promise of Isaiah's prophecy can come true. And so Jesus touches their eyes. He says, according to your faith, be it done to you. Their eyes are open. The scriptures fulfilled. These men believed and they were healed in keeping with their faith. Um, our God is so kind. It's not their faith 
that heals them. It is the object of their faith. It is Jesus Christ who heals. They do not need to have strong faith. They don't need to have great faith. They simply need to have faith. However faint their faith might be, Jesus is credited with their healing. They believed in the healer, and the healer gave them healing. Jesus is showing he has the very authority of God over the eyes, the very authority to give that which God has the the power to give and to take. Now, second, we see the mouths that speak. Um, You see that in verse 32. Uh, This passage itself is relatively simple. It's just two verses beginning in verse 32. I want to read what it says there, though. It says, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Um, No sooner have the blind men left than this other man comes up with a different problem. The text directly attributes his inability not necessarily to a medical condition, but to the oppression of a demon. Now remember once again the prophecy of Isaiah. What did it say? It said, The eyes... Uh, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the mute tongue shout for joy. Immediately after the eyes of the blind are opened, this mute man comes, right? What is happening? <laughs> Israel is seeing fulfilled prophecy right before their eyes. If they know the word of God, then they know what's happening right now. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw how the, the man in the Gadarenes was possessed by demons. They seemed to have this persistent impulse. We talked about the persistent impulse of the, the demons toward death works, toward twisting and perverting and, and making ugly that which God has made to be good, and it, it's made to be beautiful. And here, they do that with speech. They do that with speech, right? It's, it's twisted by the demon from what it's supposed to be. Think about what it's supposed to be. God has made us to be able to speak. He has given us mouths. He has given us tongues for the use of his glory. Right? When you read scripture, God's people frequently will speak of the need to tell others what God has done. Think about Deuteronomy 32.1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You also have a passage like Psalm 40, verse 3, where he talks about the words of his mouth being the reason that others are going to praise God, right? He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Praise is meant to be shared. How do we do that? The primary way we do that is with our mouths, the things that we speak about. You see, it comes out of us. The plan is that it comes out of us and other people hear it, and then they do it too. We're we're supposed to be worshipers who spur on other worshipers with our words. When people hear our words, they're supposed to share words, and their words are supposed to be heard by others so that the word keeps going. That's what our mouths were made for. Speech in its best, purest God-given form is a way of praising the creator and building others up. James talks about why we have mouths in his epistle. He tells us that our mouths were made to bless God and bless people. And so speech is a means of praising God. But in scripture, it's also a way of crying out to God for help. 
It's another way that we speak, right? Notice how there is no cry from the man for help. There can be no cry from this man for help. This demon has rendered him incapable of even audibly crying out to God. He may be crying out in his heart, but he cannot move his mouth to do it. Right? The depth of the oppression here is, is incredible. When he can't even cry out to the Lord, he can't bless others with his speech. He can't tell of the wonderful works of God, and he cannot even beg for help. We were made in God's image. Our God is a speaking God, right? He created through speech. And he made us to reflect his character and his nature. We were made to speak. We were made to talk about God's goodness. How sad is it, is it when this man can't do what he was made to do? Listen to 1 Chronicles 16. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wonderful works. Psalm 26, I go to your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Psalm 40, verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Listen to the mouth, how it's used in Psalm 105. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wonderful works over and over and over again. The mouth is employed for praising God. It is why he gave us mouths. Do you know what is even more sad, though? When we have lips and mouths, they speak just fine, and we don't use our mouths for what God gave them to us for. We don't talk about the wonderful works of God when we have the ability and we have the opportunity. There's no, there's no demon stopping us. There's no disability stopping our lips. And yet often we keep our mouths closed anyway. Christian, you were made to speak. You were made to testify. You were made to tell. You were made to sing. You were made to converse. You, you were made to, to tell others so they could know who the Savior is. That's what you were made for. That's why he gave you a mouth. If you have a mouth that works, you need to know what the purpose of it is. It's to bring him up. You were given a mouth to talk to your children about him when you're walking along the way. You were given this mouth to remind other believers to keep resting on Jesus. Your God gave you a mouth. Will you use it? Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the third point of our passage, which is ears that refuse to hear um, look what happens in verse 34. These amazing things happen. The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled right in their presence, it seems. And look what happens. But the Pharisee said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Think of how hard their hearts have to be to say this and apparently believe it. And they've seen Jesus' love for people. They've seen his compassion. They've seen his kindness. They've seen how he, how he helps people. They should know the scriptures. These are people who are supposed to be experts in the scriptures. And they should see plainly the fulfillment is happening right in front of them. And they actually have the nerve to say, Satan is at work here. This is blindness too. This is deafness. They... They won't see his ministry. They won't hear God's word. It is 
just, it's just sad. It, it is tragic in the extreme. It, it is off the charts in its lunacy. And yet these men are not insane. Worse yet, they're in their right minds. You see, it's not a matter of the mind at all. It's a matter of the heart, right? If the heart is bad, we will use our minds to the best of our ability to twist anything so that we get our preferred outcome. We will. So knowledge is not the problem. And this is one of the things that modern people need to understand that our problem is not that we don't know enough. Oh, we know plenty. We use it all wrong because our hearts are wrong. Do not make the mistake of thinking that blindness and muteness are under God's sovereign power, but the sort of hardened unbelief of the Pharisees is not. Understand, there is a theme here, and all of these problems are under the sovereignty of God. What does Deuteronomy 29.4 say? But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Right? Our hearts... Our hearts are hard enough naturally on their own without God doing anything to them, without God doing anything to our hearts. We will never believe. We have plenty within us to resist God until he changes our hearts. Look at Isaiah's ministry. In Isaiah 6, God gives Isaiah this inspirational moment before he's about to launch off into his future ministry. And he tells him, hey, Isaiah, I'm going to call you to preach for me. And Isaiah is like, oh, no, you're very scary, Lord. You know, he's in Isaiah 6. He's seeing God in the temple. He's terrified of what he sees. And then God says, you know what? Actually, I'm going to give you a preaching ministry. And you can almost imagine Isaiah going, okay, what kind of preaching ministry? What's it going to be like? And God says, well, uh, make, their heart, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn away and be healed. God's intention is for his preaching ministry to not be received. <laughs> He's going to have a ministry of just falling on deaf ears, people just not believing the things that he's saying. And God says that's on purpose. Right Later on, uh, uh, Jesus quotes this passage to explain why he's preaching in parables. And he, he says that by, God's, by his design, some people hear the truth and love it, and some people hear the truth and hate it, and that's good. That's the design. Right? Th think about it even just here in the text. Right In verse 33, the crowd marvels. They say, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Sort of an exaggerated response. Things like this have been seen in Israel. But, but it shows how willing they are to see and believe and to receive it for what it is. And then one verse later, the Pharisees say, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Right? The, the crowd receives it and the Pharisees don't. Um, I, I shared this before, I think, uh, but when I be became a Christian, I was convinced everybody in my life needed to hear the same message that convinced me and changed me. And so I went to my friends and I told the people in my life, hey, guess what? You need to know about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And I thought that they were all just going to believe the same thing I did because God had done a work in my heart and I thought he would do the same for them. And I was very upset when I realized the people in my life were not nearly as receptive to the exact message that I had received and loved. Why was that? Right? Was, I, was I more spiritual? Was I more holy? Was I smarter? I mean, I might have thought that at the time. The truth is no. It was a deeper spiritual truth in my heart that God worked in me. And 
And for his own purposes, he didn't work it in my best friend at the time, even though I still pray that the Lord would work in him. Um, it is the same thing we see here. The ministry of Jesus divides, right? Some people love his ministry and some people hate his ministry. They'll even pretend it's Satan doing the work to avoid the implications. Same ministry, the same message, the same audiences, wildly different responses, right? God says that this wide range of reactions is by design. It is not an accident. The Pharisees have dull hearts. They have heavy ears. They have blind eyes. In the same way that the eyes of those men were closed until God opened them, the hearts of these Pharisees will be closed until God opens them too. He doesn't owe it to them. Uh, and yet we know some of the Pharisees do eventually believe. Nicodemus is one example of a Pharisee who trusted in Jesus. The Apostle Paul, perhaps the most famous example. God can, and, and praise God, he does indeed take out hearts of stone and give people hearts of flesh. If you believe today, then you are exhibit A, B, C, D, E, F, G, that God does do that. What's the application of this then? Are we helpless? Are we supposed to do nothing because it's all in, under God's sovereign hand? No, of course not. God gives us commands. He gives us, he gives us a role in ministering for him. He tells us, for example, to pray to the Lord of the harvest. He says, pray. You know, we, re, we pray, we respond, we tell others, but we leave the work of harvesting to the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it is in his hands. And so I suppose part of the application here is please be people of prayer. Pray for the conversion of your loved ones. Pray for the Lord to change hearts around you. Pray for God to change hearts that you don't even know. Hearts of strangers. Hearts of random people on the street. When you're driving home and you see somebody out for a jog, pray for that random person. It's random to you. They're not random to God. Um, pray for people to come to this church who've never heard the Bible before. Pray that God would give you opportunities to share the gospel with them. Uh, pray for God to take out hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. Pray for the conversion of the nations. Please pray. Pray that people would hear the word and that they wouldn't be like the Pharisees with hearts that are as hard as rocks. One of the disabilities we've seen here today, blindness and muteness, of all of them, unbelief is by far the most tragic. Right? If, you, if you live your whole life without eyes, but you trust in Jesus, you can see more clearly than all of them. And if you live life with no disabilities, but you never repent and you never trust Jesus, you might live a really happy life, but there's no one in the whole world that should be pitied more than that. Right? The inability to see the wondrous works of God, the inability to rejoice in them, the inability to believe in the Messiah is worse than going your whole life without seeing with your physical eyes. Unbelief is worse than being unable to open your mouth. It is worse than any affliction that can strike a person. And apart from prayer and God answering that prayer for their heart to be changed, no one's going to ever respond with anything other than disinterest or hostility. I've been kind of focusing in on spiritual blindness here. I want to actually turn back to the subject of literal sickness, um, which is the occasion of these miracles to begin with, right? Um, I think 
in our minds, we might ask this question, why doesn't God lift such burdens? Why doesn't he lift such burdens? Why do we, why do we have blind or mute people at all? Right? Couldn't God simply will them not to be blind or mute anymore? When we ask that question, you know, why does God do blank? Why does God, uh, why doesn't God do blank? Here's what we're doing. We're, we're venturing into places that he hasn't revealed. We need to start there by understanding you're asking a speculative question about God. A, a question that he hasn't given answers to. So we don't want to give answers that God doesn't give. And, and we can't answer those questions precisely in every case. But we can affirm a few things in relation to sickness, biblically speaking. And, and so it's going to be weird. You, you actually just heard a sermon, and now you're going to hear a separate sermon almost. And hopefully you're okay with that. I don't do this very often. What can we say about sickness and disability? First is this. We can affirm that sickness and disability would not exist apart from the fall. So once Adam takes the fruit in Genesis chapter 3... The whole created order experiences a change. His relationship to God changes. He becomes afraid of God. He withdraws from God. He hides from God. And he, he covers himself, right? And, and so does his wife. And we also experience a change of relationship with others, right? What does he do with his wife? He suddenly looks at her and he thinks, this woman is the source of my trouble, right? He, there's a rift now and he blames her for his sin. And then also you see it in their children, right? What do their children do? Their children turn on each other. Their children fight each other. They, they even, one of them even kills the other. We also have a relationship change not only to God, not only to each other, but also to the created world around us, right? What was, what was the situation before the fall? Before the fall, we lived in an inviting garden with plentiful food, all we needed, and no thorns and no thistles. And now, what do we have? We live in a cursed creation uh, where the, the thorns of the fall grow up and we work now by the sweat of our brow and we have life that is hard and, and it wasn't hard before. And God tells Adam, he's going to have physical pain now and he's eventually going to return to the ground because of what happened in the fall. Uh, for, the, for the woman now, giving birth is a painful experience. I, Having seen children born, I, I want to know what a non-painful childbirth before the fall would have been like. And I know every, every woman in this room would love to know that as well. But we, we affirm that sickness and disability are a result of the fall. They're not a part of God's original design for creation. He didn't make this a world of sickness. We did. We did by our actions in the fall. Second, we could affirm this, that God uses sickness in our experience to remind us that we were made for another world and that this one is not right. This is one of the tools, one of the ways that sickness is used in our lives. Sickness has a way of reminding us that there is something about us, something about our lives that isn't there yet, right? Something it tells us when we get sick, if you... I'm guessing all of you have experienced sickness in the last few months, one way or another. And when we are sick, when we are ill, when we're in pain, 
He is letting us know we are not home yet. We've not reached our destination. Uh, and, and sickness is this impossible to ignore reality that presses upon us. No matter how nice the house or how nice the car or how nice our daily existence is or how much we love our job, we cannot resist getting sick. It keeps coming. It presses upon us. It, it doesn't let up. And, and one of the things that it does is it drives us to our knees in prayer. Right? It, it instinctively presses us to cry out to God. Sickness and pain force us to remember that this world is not a comfortable garden. It is a thorn-filled ruin until we find our rest in God. And even once we do throw ourselves upon God, sickness is still there. And it serves to remind us not to make our permanent home here. Um, I've quoted this before, but Spurgeon says sickness reminds us that we are all trees in a forest marked for the woodcutter's axe. Um, I was actually just reading in George Swinnock, and he says, uh, part of when, <laughs> when you see leaves falling from the tree, it's a reminder that more are going to fall. Uh, that is what death is for us, right? Every time somebody in our life dies, it is a reminder that eventually my leaf will fall as well. Sickness reminds us we are not bulletproof. We may have a lot of power. We may have a lot of resources, but we cannot ultimately escape from God. We live in this world. You remember, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Guess what? Death took Lazarus with his hard life, and it took the rich man, too, with his good life. Right? Death and sickness are this great equalizer reminding us of our vulnerability. Sin has distorted our hearts and the world around us is inhospitable and our bodies are inhospitable. And so where do we find ourselves? In this place of comfort and ease, the fall has filled life with friction and pain in part to remind us that we were made to know God. And as long as we're far from him, our lives are going to be out of order. Um, C.S. Lewis said it this way, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We can ignore our pleasures. We are bad at ignoring our pain. Uh, we can't know the full answer of the why. A why of sickness, why of suffering. But we can at least from some of the things that God uses it for. He uses it to rouse us. He uses it to remind us this world is not our home. Third, we must affirm that sickness and disability do not exist apart from the will of God. If you ask, why are these men blind? Why is this man mute? We know that the immediate answer is, is sin. We know that the immediate answer is the, the demonic but it's also a part of the curse. It's part of the will of God that sinners actually experience sickness. It's not like sickness was some external force that swept into the world like a wind when the fall took place and now God is, is incapable of keeping the sickness back and the sickness is everywhere and he's trying to clean it up with his divine Windex or something and we just keep putting more back there or something like that. And by the way, that was a way that I frequently heard sickness talked about when I was a young man. 
That sickness is like a force that God is, is combating and he's, he's pushing it back and, and he's fighting it off. But we human beings, we're just so bad that sickness keeps happening. And if we weren't so bad, we wouldn't be so sick. These were things I remember hearing about. My parents used to listen to Word of Faith preachers who would talk that way. And they would say, if only you had more faith, then you wouldn't be so sick. It's an awful thing to say to somebody who's sick, and it just makes you wonder, how are these word of faith preachers not living forever, right? <laughs> no one does the math. This guy's not 300 years old. Um, <laughs> sickness is not some external force that God can't stop. He can. And, and in Scripture, he often does show mercy. He often does heal people. But the healing is always temporary because we aren't meant to live forever. Because ultimately, when God does not heal, it is for his own reason, and those reasons rest with him. And so, if you're in pain right now, if you're experiencing sickness, or, or maybe you're great right now, but you eventually will, you should know that the whole of Scripture is there to testify to you that God is sovereign in your sickness, not just in your health. He is sovereign in your sickness, not just in your health. God is not standing by, wringing his hands, wondering what he's going to do about this new sickness that came your way. Here's what he's doing. He's running plan A. He is running plan A. It is his only plan. But he knows what that plan is. And guess what? We do not. He knows what is around every corner for us. And we do not. Not only that, but he's planned all the turns. He knows how it's going to go because he is wise and he is sovereign. You can trust his wisdom. You can trust his goodness, right? This is not a series of twists and turns that were planned by a malevolent being who hates you or who has some bad intention for you. He is good. And so you trust his wisdom that he planned it all well and that you can rest in that. And then you can trust his goodness because you know what his motives are. We know his motives. He is good. He is kind. He is loving. He is not hateful toward us. What are his motives in your sickness? If you're a believer, I can take you to Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things Sickness and death are included under the umbrella of all things. And when you think of the dark events of your life, if you think of the pain that you're experiencing even right now, it goes under that umbrella. And he does not do it to embitter you. So as you think about sickness and you think about suffering, on the one hand, know that nothing I've just said keeps you from experiencing the pain. You've not yet heard a promise from Scripture or from me, that your pain is going to stop, and God promises that it will. None of these things lift the sickness. It doesn't lift the chronic agony that you may go through on a daily basis, and you have not yet figured out how to eradicate it. The experience of sickness, of physical wasting away, is real, it is awful, it is miserable. The scriptures would suggest, though, that knowing the goodness of God knowing the wisdom of God, knowing the power of God, knowing the care of God, knowing the motives of God does help us 
see through it all, that God is not surprised by our circumstances. It helps us to be reminded of these things when the time of hardship is upon us. Those twin truths of of the goodness of God and the power of God have been a great help to me in times of suffering. And I have found when I pray with those who are sick that reminding them in prayer of those twin things is a great source of comfort as well. Because you can say he is powerful and he's good and he could lift this. Right now, he could lift this, and yet it remains upon me, and the sickness and the pain doesn't stay because he is bad or because he is villainous, but because of the deeper reasons that he knows and that I must learn to trust him with. And the point of the goodness and power of God is this. You can trust him even in sickness and in pain. You can. You can let the mysteries and the reasons Rest with him because when you know that he's good, then you know you can trust him. When you know that he's good, you know that you can trust him. I want you to know this, believer. He is is working even your sickness, even your back pain, even your cancer, even your approaching blindness, even your physical disability, even, even your toothache. Whatever it may be, he is, he is working for your good. If you are a believer, he is working for your good. He is shaping you. And being shaped is not easy, right? An artist doesn't shape a piece of granite into its final form simply by rubbing it a little. right? It, it, it happens by hard, jarring strikes one after another, and, and each strike is unpleasant, and, and, and at the moment, it seems hard. He's shaping you for your good. And your good, as he defines it, is not comfort. I know you wish it was. Sometimes, most of the time, I wish it was. Your good, as he defines it, is not wealth. It is not ease. It isn't even an absence of pain, though you may wish that it was. Your father loves you too much for that. Instead, your good, as he defines it, is holiness and likeness to Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says this. Suffering Christian, I hope you can hear this right now. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Has he been striking you, chiseling you this past year? Is he shaping you right now? You can feel the hammer. He's preparing you. He's preparing you for the eternal weight of glory. He is working all things for your true good. He is. You can trust him to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you prepare us to suffer? Whether we are suffering right now as I speak, or whether suffering is on the horizon. Whatever our situation, please do not leave us as we are. Remind us that we can trust you to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory 
not worthy of comparison with the momentary afflictions that we are experiencing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.